Hi all, and welcome back to a special memo episode on the European VC. This time, we dive deep with Acrobate Ventures' first fund, and we can't wait to build the most kick-ass operator LP syndicate into them in the EU VC Investment Club. Do sign up to join the movement on theeuropeanvc.com. Today, we're joined by two of the three founding partners of Acrobate Ventures, Joachim and Mike. Unfortunately, Bass was down with COVID and with final close in early May, we had to do without him. Acrobate Ventures is an operator-led fund backing Eastern founders building global software companies. Focus is on arbitrage opportunities in data-heavy B2B pre-seed seed companies, sourced by a combination of proprietary tech and insider networks in the tight-knit Eastern diaspora tech founder communities. The mix between operator experience and AI expertise allows the team to be a constructive partner and earn the trust of founding teams quickly, which grants the team unparalleled access to these initially undervalued yet proven unicorn builders. The team has an absolutely sick track record of 70 plus investments over more than 15 years in the Baltics, CEE and CIS region, yielding a whopping 15.7x DPI and 57.9x TVPI. We love their investment strategy, focusing on early access by allocating significant capital to acquire defendable entry ownership positions in target startups and retaining relevance across stages by allocating super pro rata rights via SPVs for the LP base. Backed by institutional LPs, the fund has been actively investing through the fundraise, which called capital already marked up by 2.1x. Have you ever wondered how you can use relationship analytics to spot the next European unicorn? Europe is incredibly diverse and finding the next kick-ass European startup is not for the faint of heart. In Europe, no single hub is responsible for spawning all the next tech success stories. Europe's 381 unicorns come from over 65 cities and data-driven sourcing is integral to the success of European VCs. Join us in learning from the best, our partners Affinity and Dealroom, as we deep dive on how relationship intelligence can put your sourcing on steroids. Register now to the event at the European VC's LinkedIn page. The event will be held online on the 7th of April at 7pm Central European time. Tickets are free, but limited, so grab them while you can. Joachim, Mike, welcome to the European VC. We're looking so much forward to having a lot of fun with you here today. And we are super excited because this is one of our memo episodes. And that means that the European VC Investment Club is investing into your fund. Excellent. Great. Joachim, would you maybe uh, just let us know who you are? And then after it's Mike, let us know who you are. So Joachim, I'm uh, 41 years old, two kids, a cat and a massive dog. Living in Amsterdam, but sort of an expert in my own country, because I've spent everything since I was 17 years old in pretty much a different country every two or three years, whether that was for studies or for work. Also brought me sort of closer to the region we are investing in. In my previous life as a founder of a biofuels company in Austria with you know, arms going into uh, the Ukraine. Yeah, I've got a passion for vintage cars. So that's it in a nutshell. I hear that it's quite a passion for that. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, go ahead, take the floor. Yeah, so Mike Reiner, I'm half German, half Dutch. Originally, I was born in Hamburg 
and then moved to Netherlands when I was a young teenager, German father, Dutch mother, really into photography. I studied information science back in the days, which is a combination of computer science and business. I also studied in Amsterdam, but then moved also to Estonia, where I lived quite a while and also spent quite a bit of time in Eastern Europe. But now I live back in Amsterdam, so happy to be back here also as a Dutch guy. Yeah, Mike, that's funny. You just brought me back to one of the funnest trips of my life. It was in Hamburg where we managed to find this weird restaurant slash bar, whatever that was, that had picklebacks, which is quite hard to find in Europe. Thank you for that. That's cool. Guys, I think let's start with the obvious. We're here to talk about Acrobator. What is that? <laughs> Give us a quick rundown so our audience knows. Yeah, sure. So Acrobator is a pre-seat seed stage fund invests in software companies only and what makes us a little bit more unique is that we focus on the what we call the eastern diaspora which is founders that are originally from ukraine kazakhstan armenia georgia russia all the way into the baltics and parts of you know the more eastern parts of eastern europe that was very clear on a geography perspective but give us some more juice here in terms of you know the strategy i'm just asking for an overall kind of view strategy, the thesis, you know, what you're looking for, what you're not looking for, etc. There is two sides. So one, we have a geo-focus where we look into what we call CSC originating founders, also including the Baltics. And that's uh, due to our background. You know, the four of us spent significant time in the region and just have built networks over a longer period of time and seen incredible amount of talent there. We invest in Western entities, you know, this uh, it can be Delaware, it can be Western Europe but founders from that region that have either already made the jump or are about to make the jump to Western markets. So that's one side, what's important to us as a fund. And the other side is like we have two core competencies. So we focus mostly on B2B data-intensive companies. That's also due to our background in artificial intelligence. Our tech partner, Ramon, has a long background in AI. He's been lecturing artificial intelligence and he's been a CTO of Global Orange for more than a decade. And uh, so we can go very deep on the technology and data is very important to us. And also typically when we talk to startups, we really look into what's their data strategy, how do they build those data modes and create a competitive advantage there. So that's very important. And then we have one more core competency in the fund, and that's primarily due to BUS, and that's growth marketing. You know, BUS has been the CMO of the three companies and has also developed its own growth marketing methodology. That's another lens through which we look at analyzing companies and also yet in supporting companies. Yeah, maybe going back on you know why we actually picked this thesis. From my family side, we've been in VC since the late 70s, and we've been investing in that region since about 1991, 1992, just after the fall of the wall. So we've seen that region develop. We've built up networks around there for a very long time. And we look at Bas, so Bas's mother is actually Ukrainian. And he, like, like Mike mentioned, ended up the CMO of a few big e-com businesses in Russia initially. And he has grown up in that part of the world for the past you know, 15 years with the first generation of very successful tech founders. And the region has produced massively successful companies that are not recognized as being you know, originally Ukrainian or Russian because they were never. They were always Delawares or Western companies that the founders are clearly from there. There's a clear gap as well on the funding side at that pre-seed siege stage. We fill that gap. We are the bridge between those founders going west and their Series A. I'd love to just dive a bit deeper on the 
Russian-speaking diaspora or the Eastern European thesis and why you see there being such a huge both arbitrage opportunity. So what is it that's causing that? But mm-hmm. also the talent there and what's happening there in these years. Everyone knows that there's a lot happening right now, but also over the last five, 10 years, a lot has happened. Yeah, I think a few things. So one is there's incredible tech talent in the region. What you'll see is that a lot of companies that are now like Western companies are originally founded also by Baltic founders, Islamic founders, Russian founders. And a lot of times also people don't even know about it, right? That those companies originally from those regions. I mean, good examples, if you look at uh, Baltic companies, for instance, is Wise, right? They're based in London, now with Estonian founders. So that's uh, an incredible team. And even companies like WhatsApp, right? Russian co-founders. So there's so many large companies that come out of the region. And you see that oftentimes early on, those networks are way harder to access, So, which goes both ways, you know, it's often harder for those founders to access capital, but it's also harder to access those networks and get to the right founders, because oftentimes those are very close-knit groups, very trust-based, and so you often really get into fine introductions and people you know, and they've built relationships over a long period of time. That makes a huge, huge difference. So when we talk about arbitrage opportunities, what you see is that typically those founders also, they raise at a lower valuation initially. It's very much probably the network base where it's introductions and you get to know to someone and, and be able to get into the round. That's something that's not easy to establish. It really basically requires also introductions of, for instance, people that you've already known for more than 10 years, you know, and that it's slowly got to know. So that's important to us. It also means that the way we source our deal flow is primarily via our networks very network driven, you know, that's how far we structure the fund. Yeah, and I think it's a bit difficult and our audience may have heard that today, that it's difficult to separate the investment thesis from the team here because everything here is very, very closely connected in that what really brings the four of you together is that you are all so experienced in this region and have built up those networks. And then at the same time, you apply a lot of technology and AI to that, which we'll talk about later. But I'm curious if you would just take us through, uh, we've heard you two a bit, but also uh, about Bass and your other GP that's coming on, Ramon. I'd love to hear a bit further about how you complement each other and why you've invested for so much time in this region. Yeah. So let me uh, first introduce Bastan a little bit more in detail. So we mentioned already that, you know, uh, he speaks the language, first of all, which is not unimportant. He really rose in the ranks uh, or in the spotlight, let's say, in Russia in the early 2000s as a CMO of a few very large e-com businesses, amongst which also Ozone.ru, which is one of the bigger companies there. He later on, from his CMO role, started his own growth hacking company and also co-founded one of the more successful travel companies within Russia for a tour package operator. And that's where sort of he really got into that pretty unique network. About halfway through that angel investment career, we set up a syndicate to do some co-investments alongside BAS, and those have been very successful. So that was sort of the first iteration of what is now Acrobat or Ventures. Ramon, he comes out of the academic world. He was an assistant professor at the University of Delft, teaching AI and ML, also has an electrical engineering background, computer science, and for the past 12 years was the CMO of a large Dutch SaaS development company, where he stood at the helm of about 160 developers across Eastern Europe. So his knowledge on tech is essential when we're talking about, you know, making investments in deep tech companies. And when we talk to these companies, you have a rapport with the technical founders that you otherwise lack. 
So we were both with his growth marketing background, Ramon with his tech. I come more from the VC background, so really structuring the fund, structuring deals, bringing a lot of professionalism into the fund. And then when we, we sort of officially launched the fund mid of uh, 2021, since the beginning of 21, we already were working together with Mike. And I think what Mike really brings to the table is, you know, he's got a vast experience on the pre-seed level, given his time at Estonia at uh, Startup Wise Guys. And he'll tell you a bit more about that. Yeah, yeah. I lived five years in Estonia. So back in, it was the beginning of 2012 when I moved there originally. And I met like an investor with a partner like in London. We we're just in the process of setting up Startup Wise Guys and we decided to do it together. And I was running the accelerator for three years. And obviously, you know, the way the accelerator works is you see an incredible amount of early stage deal flow. A year into the accelerator, we decided to focus on B2B. So initially it was a B2C and B2B technology agnostic. So a year in, we, we decided to focus on B2B, what we call business tech. So investing a lot of like B2B companies. Um, in my time, I invested around less than 40 companies. The accelerator now has more, I think it's 275 portfolio companies at this stage. You know, it's a been growing really, really nicely. And Cristobal has done an amazing job to scale this further in Europe. And after, I mean, I spent also a bit of time in Latvia, moved to Berlin, was traveling a lot in Eastern Europe in particular, looking for interesting deals. I also co-founded then a network called CityEye, which grew into like, 80 cities where we worked with early stage AI founders and, and you know, sharing their knowledge on what works and what doesn't work in AI, which helped us a lot to source also early stage and see what's going on in artificial intelligence. Out of this also came a conference called World Summit AI. Basically, the four of us, I think, is in a very, very nice combination of understanding of artificial intelligence from the technical side for Ramon, uh, you know, my background, Eastern European angle, where we see an incredible amount of talent that we're very lucky now to be able to double down on. It's interesting because me from the outside, you know, looking into what you guys are doing, it feels like you guys are covering a big region, right? And keep in mind, I come from Portugal, right? Portugal yeah. is a small country in mm -hmm. the tail of Europe. And when I speak to national VCs about, you know, expanding internationally, they're always like very wary of it, right? Of going into Spain and th that's the small region. So it might give this feeling that, oh, that's a big, big region. And I think the most interesting way to go about understanding how you guys manage to cover it through your network, through your connections, through past experience, is actually talking about your past experience, right? The, the track record that you guys already have, even though this is a fun one. So I'd love to throw that out there and hear you uh, give us some examples and explain how you make that work. Well, I can say from a region side and the size of it, like Mike mentioned, you know, we're very much focused on our networks, developing our networks, and also the founder groups we are part of. So Bus, because, you know, of his background in tech as well, he's considered a tech founder in the region. So he's part of you know, the inner circle there. So that gives us a, a pretty unique access that you otherwise don't. The networks that we're in also very efficient. And maybe a small anecdote to that is like if you um, invest in Armenian founders, you quickly find out that diaspora, it doesn't really matter where they are. They are super, super, super well connected. They support each other. And it also means that when you're on the inside and you're, you're, you're trying to get to those deals that are very high quality, but then, you know, it's still not on the radar of bigger European or U.S. investors. It becomes a very efficient play there. And I think, you know, one of the other things we're doing, but I think I'll let Mike answer that more in detail, is use technology to help with that efficiency. Yeah, and also, I mean, just relationships. So one example is uh, Bus invested in Miro. He was, you know, one of the first angels in Miro, which has done obviously incredibly well. 
and it's these kind of founders that now being very successful also in turn attract a lot of like inbound for you know as angel requests to invest in all kinds of technology startups so being close to these kind of founders is incredibly important you know when it comes down to access in those markets and Oleg Chardon the co-founder of Miro is a venture partner with us so we work very closely with them and then what the other point you you mentioned is it's one thing to we have calls every day with people just catching up in the region and continuously basically figuring out what are the latest hottest deals and people are starting companies you know which is you have to be constantly on top of it's a lot of calls with highly sick people that we've built a relationship over a long period of time that we just know have great access. And also a way for us, and that's what Joachim managed on the data side, is to continuously improve the way we manage this process. And one thing is to continuously enrich data on people in our network so it's easier for us to find the right people for the right question within our CRMs, just make it more effective, which is a lot about data enrichment, like Ramon is building a graph database, you know, to do this search more effectively, also to understand more how people link to each other, so it's all this kind of support systems that we put in place that make our job easier. It's actually interesting because the tech stack is something we don't often deep dive that much in, you know, because there's not a, a lot of innovation happening there. Could you deep dive a bit more? You just gave a little teaser there, right? But I'm personally very interested in knowing and, uh, you know, because we've had super interesting conversations on more the sourcing side, but you're hinting into something slightly different in terms of where you see the technology yeah. coming in and adding value. Yes, I'll give you a few stories, a bit of background. So before Acrobat, I also was a venture partner at a fund called Open Ocean. And there, just as a side project, also looked into like, how can we rate, for instance, companies, you know? So we did initially quite some basic stuff, but just to understand what makes a good company and a bad company in, in terms of data points, you know, that gives you indicators of like, when should you look at a company and how to prioritize this. And then I realized a lot of things we can also apply to people, you know? So then we tried to figure out how can we enrich our network? You know, one thing is just to take LinkedIn and then enrich it with crawling a lot of additional information on the people that you have in networks and segment them effectively. Initially, I did this with Google Sheets. And you know, also we used all kinds of crawlers. We did Google Sheets and we had 35 columns of like kind of additional data stuff there, which just made it easier then to search. And Ramon is putting that information now in a graph, you know, so again, like the next iteration of product to make things easier. And that allows you to use information to generate labels, which in turn help you then to filter and to search. It allows you to build cross relationships between different people. So understand how people are related to one another. Basically also then generate tags, right? Different segments. So the whole idea is to use existing data and then enrich that data and generating more tags and stuff that makes it easier for us to manage those networks. And where we want to go with this is also testing with knowledge graphs, for instance, on how well connected the founder is, to give you an example, right? So to understand their networks better and like how well their industry connections are in the history. So start as we're right now developing this internally for us to be able to manage our networks better, the next iteration we want to work towards is also to understand networks of founders and people we work with better. And at the end of the day, that's what venture capital is about, right? It's about networks. And that's, I think, at the core and also surprising in how those networks have been managed. Because at the end of the day, right now, how it works is typically who's on top of mind, you know? And if, if, if that person happens to be top of mind, you got to call that person or write that person. That just needs to be done better, right? That's the problem we're trying to solve. Absolutely. It's actually funny because we're talking to Affinity these days where they are definitely a company that is doubling down on that and believe that this is the way to go. So super excited to be learning more about the way you do it as yeah. well. 
I'd love to just dive a bit into your track record now, because we've talked a bit about what VC is all about and that being networks and so on, but it's also a lot about the money that comes out. Yeah. Your team has proven to do quite well over the last 15 years. Just take us through that. Give us the highlight numbers that you're uh, comfortable sharing on the air here. Sure. The absolute highlight in there, of course, is, is uh, the investment in Miro. That has done extremely well. Miro is now a Decacorn and passed together with a small syndicate that is also part of this fund now. Was one of their first, or was their first investor. So we're in there at a, let's say, seed level because they didn't raise before that. So yeah, that investment has done over 500x, which is I was insane. about to say to the listeners, you can't see Joachim's face here, but uh, he's smiling. <laughs> yeah. So that's, of course, a very unique story. And the company was doing extremely well already before uh, COVID hit. But, uh, you know, Miro, for those who don't know, is an online collaborative tool. Well, come COVID, you understand where that went. But that's not the only company. You know, that was also one of the first investors in what is now the biggest e-commerce holding in uh, Kazakhstan, for instance. We were early investors in Harvard.com, which is a HR technology company here in the Netherlands. They just recently exited. If you look at total capital invested versus what already you know turned into cash, we're at above 15x, and there is still a lot more value inside the portfolio, more than 55x still. That's pretty nice. And that's, of course, one of the reasons why you've been able to attract the kind of investors that you have to Acrobat already. Sure. One more thing on the track record when we started analyzing it. So, of course, the high flyers are very interesting. But, you know, there's a large part of what VC is, is investments that do uh, kind of okay or a little bit better than okay. And the cool thing is, that's why we call it arbitrage, is because the step up between where we get in and the next round is compared to a regular Western, let's say, VC model, is quite a lot higher. So even our lesser stellar investments actually add a lot to the bottom line of the fund. And since we're, you know, it's about returning capital to investors and doing a multiple of that, that's actually where a big part of the return comes from as well. And then when it comes to the types of investors we've attracted, that is partly due to indeed track record, but also to do with how we have positioned ourselves as a fund. That's also why we like the European VC a lot. When you're talking about democratizing access, we looked at it from our side as well. What, what can we do as a fund that is different and allows for our LPs to you know, retain access all the way to pre-IPO in companies, which normally when you invest in a VC like ours, the fund size allows for maybe one or two follow-ons and then that's it. Yet as companies become more mature, risk goes down. It would be actually nice to be able to allocate capital there as well. And that's how we structured our fund. So all of the follow-on rounds are going through special purpose vehicles or an opportunity vehicle where every investor, no matter the size they have in the fund, is allowed to you know, do their share, their pro rata, as they call it. And it's this access that you know, got us on the radar of investors that otherwise don't consider investing in us. So we've got a large fund of fund out of the UK. We've got a few very renowned family offices that backed some top European VCs. And we even have a sovereign wealth fund, whose name we are just not allowed to mention. I think it's safe to say that, you know, we're the smallest fund they have ever invested in. And it's due to this access. When you look at capital allocation, vast amount of capital is allocated in a few markets, right? And if you look in Europe, 
a lot of venture capital uh, is going into, I mean, the UK, the Nordics, right? And maybe France and Dach region. So you see a lot of venture capital be focused there. And then other regions where talent is like rapidly emerging, disproportionately, right? Like less targeted. So that's also why when you look at the LP based, they were very interested to double down on that. This is just a side comment to what you said before, Joachim, with your model of creating SPVs that allows your LPs to then follow on inside them. Because with your track record and what you've done in the ecosystem, some of our listeners might be thinking, well, why aren't you raising a bigger fund? 30 million isn't a big fund, but yeah. it of course ties together with this SPV strategy. So feel free to dive a bit deeper on that and also to explain that. Yeah. And it's also about focus, right? So we know exactly how many companies we want to invest in to have enough spread yet be able to really be a conviction-based investor. So we don't like to make fast bets. We really dive deep into the companies we invest in. We foresee to do about 25 investments out of this fund. We made the choice by saying like either we raise, you know, for every euro where we do as initial investment, we raise another one or one and a half or maybe two, which gets you to a fund size. But that never gets us further than Series B. And that's where, you know, fund size becomes irrelevant because in this case, we pretty much created an open-ended fund without officially creating an open-ended fund. And that allows for a very interesting strategy. And I think it was also, you know, when we were talking to these bigger cornerstone investors, we really managed to convince them as well that part of the fund's DNA is to make sure that everybody has the same rights. So if you invest 100,000 euros versus someone that does 5 million, what you very often see is that the ones that invest the bigger tickets have special rights. They have preferred rights or anything. And that's not the case in our fund. There's no distinction. Really, I just want to double down on it because I think that it's a bit of a uh, malpractice in Europe that we have LPs requiring that you don't take fees on SPV structures. And that just lessens the motivations or the incentives for the manager to actually manage the SPVs and make sure that there's new SPV opportunities and so on. Yeah. And that then cascades into an effect where you end up leaving your pro rata rights on the table because you, you lose them along the way, right? And that's just in a way bad for everyone, right? And and as a European continent, we see those pro rata rights or that equity go to the US and the bigger funds. So that's a bit... Uh... Yeah, and if you look at it from the founder side, you become a very interesting investor as well, right? Because the founders, they, they look for partners that are there for the long haul. And if when we come in and we can tell them, like, look, guys, if you do well, we're there for you all the way through your IPO. And because of the types of investor we have behind us, you get networks that, you know, you otherwise don't find in very early stage investors. I love to ask difficult questions. So here's one. Because <laughs> I was looking here at the one pager we have in the investment club so that our, our members will be able to see. And when I'm looking at the information we have here on track record, I have the feeling, you know, there is a slight adjustment between what is your historical track record and what is exactly what the fund is doubling down on, right? So it's, it's not a complete replication but I'm not 100% sure. So I'd love you guys to talk a bit about, you know, the differences between the investments the fund will be doing and is already doing actually, and your track record and how you thought about that and how you mitigate any potential risk that might come from that. So if you look at the track record, of course, a lot of it started with angel investing. And angel investing is a very different animal to fund investing. So we have to take care that the positions we have in companies are large enough so that we don't lose any rights uh, going forward. The other lessons learned from the angel investment period is that 
it really pays off to look at companies with you know very healthy business models, so high gross margins. We don't want to invest in companies whose business model it is to raise capital. You know, that's a very important one because the last 10 years, of course, have been extraordinary when it comes to the amount of capital being allocated to tech companies. But you don't want to be in a company who just stops functioning because they can't raise anymore. So that's a big you know, lesson learned uh, from within the portfolio of prior investments. The other big thing is, and it's, it's of course a very open door, but it's team. We were very, very focused on complementary founders within teams and the networks they're in, because that's where we invested. There's a saying like you much rather invest in an A team with a B product than a B team with an A product. We now also look much, much closer into markets, which is always a bit tricky one. Because I think when I mean you mentioned angel as philosophy there, markets can be smaller for you to make a really nice return. And in our case, we have to look into like a 50x potential of the startup mm-hmm. for our fund economics to work, right? So we're way more harder towards ourselves in making those decisions, where previously those decisions you could make easier. We also, another thing we mentioned is the data side, which we're asking for the growth of the fund and where we are. Just organically, we started looking more and more into the data strategy of the startups, you know, this due to importance of data, but also competitive advantage and how they're building a moat down the future. So this has organically grown into where initially we thought like we, you know, would also be to see investments. We just, we were seeing we're really gravitating towards like data intensive companies that we like where there's a clear data mode. So that's also been growing organically between the four of us over the last years. And I do think that that data mode and also the uh, ramifications of business models built around data, I'd love to hear you dive deeper on that. Also the ethical aspects, because Everyone knows that in Europe, we have some quite tense regulation coming up around data and how, what you can do with it and so on. And we've got the whole decentralized finance and the crypto movement that's also going to affect a lot on the, your ability to actually leverage data. I'd love to hear more about how you think about these trends. I think what is interesting, I mean, if you look at Europe, right, with GDPR as an example, is that you can also use what you may call limitations to your advantage, So I think when it comes to European AI, there's an opportunity in focusing on regulation, in this case that we have here, to build companies around, where then, for instance, U.S. competitors would have a way harder time. So I think there's this opportunity of, let's say, European AI companies that can be built slightly different internationally. When you look in a broader way, compliance is a massive opportunity, you know, and there we actually love that space, looking at several companies there, where there's a lot, so much opportunity because constantly things are changing. And so being able to handle a customer data in a better way. I just talked to a startup today that focused on their called like whistleblower technology, you know, to enable companies to just be able to report all kinds of things that are happening within the company because that's driven by regulation. Like I just heard and learned today that Denmark is the first in Europe that actually now made that mandatory. And this is going to happen all over Europe by 23. You know, so these are all kinds of like regulationary developments that are driving opportunity. The way we look at it and we're looking at companies is first to figure out, do the companies have a clear data strategy to begin with? Because oftentimes that's not the case, you know, sometimes just because the founders don't, early stage is so much to worry about and don't think about it. 
and other times because they may not have the right access, you know, either for generating proprietary data or accessing certain channels that will give them proprietary data. So if that's not the case, then it's a higher risk, in our opinion. You know, if there's no unique angle that's going to enable this, that's just the higher risk and something we're more careful about. So it's important for us to understand how founders think about this. For the audience, it might not be 100% clear because the reason that we talked a lot so much about track record here and the examples of the companies and so on is because your team has a, what, what I would say is probably a top decile track record if it were a fund, right? If we look at it as a fund zero. Uh, so it is quite interesting to understand and to deep dive. And it's also interesting because you're already deploying this fund and it's already yielding some results. Do you care to share some data on that front that you feel comfortable with sharing with our listeners? Yeah. Okay. So um, right now we have seven companies in the portfolio. So all of them but two uh, are already marked up. And when I say marked up, it means that there was a significant financing round, meaning we don't mark something up if someone raises 100K at 20 million, it's insignificant. When I do a million or two at that, it becomes significant. So on paper, you could say that you know, the capital we've invested is already at 2X, which you know, investors that come into our funds do not have to pay for right now. And we've already been able, therefore, to prove that this sort of like early access arbitrage works because you know doing 2x on its own doesn't really mean anything but if it's within a year it's quite significant and also maybe i don't like just a bit get an idea of examples you know just going to name a few so one company is called respeecher what they do is voice cloning right so they essentially enable companies and then the voices of people to be changed into other voices which could be like Joachim talking in obama's voice as an example right they have already like amazing deals with Hollywood where they've been in movies, you know, uh, cloning very quite popular voices and now looking into the call center vertical where, for instance, a call center could have one unified voice, right? Where then also accents are not a problem anymore. Uh, it could be like a famous actor that borrows a voice to a company, right? So talk about voice identity. So it's an incredibly... I can see myself calling my coffee provider and having virtually <laughs> answering. That would be cool. <laughs> Yeah. So I think that's a massive trend. They're really interesting. Like, I mean, another company, Let's Enhance, very focused on just image quality for e-commerce, right? So by basically like uh, reducing the load, but also making the image more appealing, like removing background stuff and thereby optimizing conversion for e-commerce. Maybe just the latest example, a company we just signed is in the cybersecurity space incredible tech talent that has also previously built very large teams. And so very strong cybersecurity company. And also the pipeline we're looking at this, one other cybersecurity company we're looking in, we're like very closely now, hoping to close within the next two weeks. And I mean, those are guys living in the Bay Area, uh, you know, European originally, a Russian founder and an Italian founder that have been top engineers at Intel and NVIDIA respectively and, and like world-class in security. You know, and, and those guys like are building a firmware security company and already found vulnerabilities that have been published all over the world. Yeah, so it's like deeper tech that we really enjoy looking at, you know, where there's massive potential, right? Yeah, and when we, we say potential, it also means that we try to understand what the money that we put in or alongside others put in, where that's going to bring them, where is that milestone, and is that milestone really a milestone they need to hit to get their Series A? So in that validation process, we already talked to the Series A investors that could be interested in this round. So to be even do, before we put our money in, we've already checked whether the money that is being put in is enough or too much for them to reach those milestones to increase the likelihood of actually getting a tier one or you know top tier uh, series a invest in there and i think for now if you look at the companies that are in the portfolio we've got you know speed invest is an investor alongside one of our companies 
Then it's a VC called Chameleon. It's uh, the new VC by Dunion, Congavas, Pedro, and Alex Santos. You know, they're pretty renowned investors in their own right. They did the follow-up round in that announced where we also you know, co-invested. Then we've got uh, Reese Beecher. There is FFVC out of New York, you know, very successful early-stage VC. So you see that the types of companies, you know, the strategy there is working. You know, you're able to get the top, top U.S. and EU investors uh, to become interested. Yeah, and, and also get in earlier. I mean, for instance, Maru is a good example, I think, where we got into a company before they went to YC. And then YC, you know, it's, you get a lot of attention. So right away, then also the valuation is like almost increasing tenfold. It's, you know, yeah. so... Yeah, the, but, the, the company did 9x in uh, four months. <laughs> Back in the days, YC was uh, the place you went to get investors. Now you get investors, go to YC triple (laughs) (laughs) so so in that way it's beautiful how the ecosystem develops Uh, those of our audience that know our term sheets or our our, uh, deal room very well they would say ah no we should be talking about deal flow strategy but I think that we should go directly to value add because we've spoken quite a bit about how your deal flow originates from the eastern European diaspora and how your network access there is everything so let's go to the value add and then look at probably the cool coolest framework that I have yet seen, which is the cash cow bomber framework. I want to hear a bit about the story behind that. Okay. The value I would argue, it's three core categories that we focus on. The first being artificial intelligence and data. The second being growth marketing. And that's also where the cash cow bomber framework that you mentioned falls under. So I'll let Joachim talk to this. And the third is follow on funding. You know, So these would call the three categories. So when you look at artificial intelligence, we're very happy to have Ramon, who is actively working with the tech founders to look into their whole infrastructure setup, their data strategy. I mean, he has an incredible experience in, yeah, with machine learning and can never really help the teams to not only apply the latest frameworks and optimize the entire infrastructure, but also build teams, which is more important to really make the right decisions there, hiring how to build the team, how to make it scalable. That's a core thing we focus on, on the data and AI side. When it comes to follow-on investors, Joachim already mentioned it, is what we typically do already in our evaluation uh, evaluation phase is that we talk to the follow-on investors and start validating the milestones for the next round, which gives us an indication on you know how much interest there is, but also the KPIs, you know, the metrics that they want to see, which in turn then also for already before investing, we could find out, hey, this startup actually needs more. You know, Instead of, let's say, raising $1 million, the startup should raise one and a half in order to get to that milestone. So it also really helps us in the discussion with the founders and to, to figure out what's right for the company. And then obviously, once we've invested, we're very active in kind of like building that investor base together with the founders and to prepare like you know, the introductions in time and make sure, as you know, the burn is always an issue. If founders talk too late to investors, that's a huge risk. So... So that's very important to us. I'll let Joachim talk to the growth marketing. Yeah, so of course, you know, one of the key metrics which comes back in every, pretty much every investment you is growth. Growth and velocity. Velocity being just the amount of clients you get and growth, of course, just, you know, high-level numbers. If you then zoom into what a company raises, the amount of capital, then very often a big part of it, say anywhere between 20 and 40%, is dedicated to, in general, marketing. Not every founding company has very deep marketing expertise. And the Cashcom Bomber is a tool set, let's say, that allows us to 
go through a company and what they're doing currently or what they're planning to do and understand all the different aspects of marketing, which is the acronym Cash Cow Bomber, and I'll go through a few of them, is to understand where are the things that have the highest impact for the least amount of effort. Because you can only spend that dollar once. And that's where you know the Cash Cow Bomber comes in. And it's actually also supported by a team outside of the fund itself that you know these founders can rely on if they have need any support at one point uh, during the, the early stages of the development of their marketing efforts. And Bus developed this over, gosh, more than I think a decade and a half, being the CMO of these large companies in Russia. And also, you know, he worked at lastminute.com in the UK. So he has a very deep understanding about all the aspects that come into, you know, growth hacking and growth marketing. He will run through all of these um, context advertising, affiliate marketing, search engine optimization, uh, human interaction, all the different touch points that have to do with getting a brand out there with the founders and the founding team. And even before we invest, you know, we try to at least make them understand what we do there and how we do it so that they can, they themselves can measure the impact of it. And that's how, you know, the cash cow bomber uh, came to be and is uh, being used wherever uh, it can. It's actually good that Bus is not in the call for the sake of time for the recording. <laughs> it would be uh, another hour, I guess. Yeah, yeah. he could explain very well, but he loves to go into detail there. So we could do a separate session. <laughs> I was going to say that if there's interest among the audience, we'll, we'll set up something just to talk about Cash Cow Bomber, which is actually a super yeah. cool name for an event. <laughs> Maybe a last thing. So on that Cash Cow Bomber, so the framework not only allows to you know add value post-investment, but pre-investment, it allows us to understand if there are any, you know, opportunities within the company that they haven't discovered yet so that we sort of know, like, okay, when we get in, we can do this and we can help them accelerate more quickly. Guys, we are running out of time and we always end with a quick fire round. And the quick fire round is when we ask 30 to 60 second answer questions. Are you ready, guys? Sure. So first question, one of my favorite is, why does the world need Acrobat? Why does the world need Acrobatus? Because there is this massive group of founders that want to build a bridge to the West. We are pretty much the only Western VC that actually operates locally. And with the operator background, you know, that can actually hands-on help the startups. Second question, why do the very best founders, you know, sometimes those that are oversubscribed and you need to fight for those rounds, choose you over others? Oftentimes, I would say it's because we get introduced by very trusted people. So either we already know them or we get introduced by people that are trusted and often quite credible and close friends of theirs. So that helps a lot as to why we get in. And then the background of the four of us where we can really help the startups is the second point. You know, the reality is as well that when we're looking at teams within those regions, they might be oversubscribed, but it's the quality of the investors that counts. When they have to choose local money versus Western, it's a very easy choice. Third and final question. God knows how many uh, emerging fund managers are there out there, uh, not only in Europe, but worldwide. And so the final question is, why should LPs bet with you over one of the other hundreds out there? Well, I think, first of all, LPs should spread their risks, first of all. So by all means, invest in others as well. But if you want to have access to the kind of founders that have built companies 
like Miro, like Affirm, like Revolut, like Grammarly, PayPal, Bolt, then there are just very few options for you. Yeah, and also not many, in our case, have invested in more than 70 companies, you know, with a very good multiple. So that, that helps as an emerging manager. I think that we should end on the uh, 15x DPI and more than 55x TV. That's a beautiful, bold statement. That's a nice target, right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Thanks a million, guys. This was fun. We're looking forward to doing more stuff with you and become investors in your fund. Thanks a bunch. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Have you ever wondered how you can use relationship analytics to spot the next European unicorn? Europe is incredibly diverse and finding the next kick-ass European startup is not for the faint of heart. In Europe, no single hub is responsible for spawning all the next tech success stories. Europe's 381 unicorns come from over 65 cities and data-driven sourcing is integral to the success of European VCs. Join us in learning from the best, our partners Affinity and Dealroom, as we deep dive on how relationship intelligence can put your sourcing on steroids. Register now to the event at the European VC's LinkedIn page. The event will be held online on the 7th of April at 7pm Central European time. Tickets are free, but limited, so grab them while you can. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.